Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, get them open to Mark chapter 9. I want to thank Nick and the team for leading us in worship there, and thank you for joining us. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one in the seat back in front of you. Get you to be able to 196, and you'll be in Mark 9, uh, right in the passage we're going to be looking at today, and we want you to be able to follow along with us. Uh, So you know that what we're talking about is the Word of God and not our opinion, which is ultimately irrelevant. And so uh, please uh, look there, uh, turn there. And if you're a guest, I want to just make special mention to you. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning. We know how hard it is to try something new, how uncomfortable that can be. And so if you stop by our welcome desk, which is just outside those two doors, we have a gift for you for coming. Um, Just a a token of our appreciation uh, for trying, just being bold and being uncomfortable and trying something new. And we're grateful for all of you and just pray that the Lord will, will meet you in this hour and, uh, and bless you for this good decision you've made. And so I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we launch out on this sermon today. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful. Uh, we're grateful for the chance that we have to, to gather this morning. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for uh, the chance we've had to sing to you, uh, to lift up your praise. We pray that you were glorified in that. Um, and God, as we turn our attention to your word, uh, Lord, we just pray that you'll take over, uh, that, that you... Um, you would just, you would say what you want to say. Uh, you would do what you want to do. Lord, we just, I ask that your word would not return to your void, but it will accomplish everything that you set forth for it to accomplish this morning, and that you'll get the glory from all of it. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So there's a couple years of my life where I worked for a company called Endeavor Communications. It's a telecommunications company in Cloverdale, and I was hired on there for a brand new position. Right? It, was a, it was a position they'd never had before, and so I understood on my first day that in a few months I would have a follow-up meeting with the CEO to kind of reevaluate the position, right? to understand, like, is, is this actually worth paying you for? Right? What have you done? Like, what, is, what kind of value has this brought to the company? Right? So that kind of just hung over my head for the first few months, and I wanted to be really prepared for the meeting, so I, I tracked as much data as I could. Right? I, I, I had detailed numbers on all kind of the errors I found in the company processes, the amount of money it saved. I had this big presentation of how like this position actually brings value and you should keep it around for a while. And I really liked the CEO. He's one of my favorite bosses I've ever worked for. And the big day came, and I made my big presentation. And he liked the presentation. Um, and then we started talking about future goals. All right, I love what's happening. Now let's talk about what we can add to it. And I was pitching uh, a few ideas that I had that I was really excited about, and some, some more audits I could do in the company's processes, some work with the directors. And late in the meeting, when I thought we were all done, he's like, this is all great. Like, I just go on all of it. But I've got a couple new ideas for you. And before I tell you what they were, there's something I should tell you about me. And I, I, I confessed this in the first service, and they all looked at me like I was weird. So now I'm really hesitant to do it, but I'm going ahead, right? And it's this. I have an almost phobia, almost a fear of making phone calls. Now, I do it because to function as an adult, you have to, right? But it takes a lot of effort. It takes, like, sucking myself up. It takes, like, some deep breaths. It's like, it's like a three-minute process to get ready for a 30-second phone call. I'd much rather just have a face-to-face conversation. I, I've always hated it. In fact, how I knew I wanted to marry Corinne is that I kept our relationship going long distance and would talk to her on the phone because I wouldn't do that to anybody else, right? And that's what you need to know about me to understand the next part of the story. When the CEO said, I love all you're doing. Now here's one more role we're going to add to you. I want you to start doing random customer surveys. And you're just going to go down the list and you're going to start cold calling all of our customers and just ask them how we're doing. And he said, I'm thinking around 150, 200 of these a month. And I was too stunned to even speak. I kept thinking, how did we get here? 
right? Like we, there was zero mention of this before. I can go back and look at the job description I was hired under. No mention of, of cold calling people, right? I thought we were on the same page and we aren't even close. And I left his office and I went back to my office. I was still stunned, trying to figure out how that meeting that was going so well went so wrong so quickly. And it took a couple moments and then I was like, you know what? You got to get over it and move on. And it was for this reason. He's the CEO and you're not, Right? He's my authority. He's in charge. He gets to tell me what to do. And I had to do it. And so for the rest of the time I worked there, I made hundreds of phone calls. Poorly, frantically, stressed out the whole time. But I made them because he was in charge. Now we're studying the book of Mark as a church. And, and the reason that we're doing so is because I, I believe about our church that we want to be disciples and apprentices of Jesus. Our desire is to live our lives as his followers, but there are times in our walk with God when it can feel like we are not on the same page. Times in which he brings things along our path that we would never choose. Seasons marked by curiosity at best, often confusion or despair at worst. Times where we struggle to see what he's up to, prolonged periods of waiting and more. Or it can feel like God and I just simply aren't on the same page here. And the reason for that is simple. We're not. We're not on the same page. We never have been. God is God and I'm not, which means he's always operating levels that I'm not operating on. And in Mark 9 this morning, we're going to see Jesus and his disciples, and they're not on the same page. Not even close, right? Disciples are, at this point in the story, they are way more confused than they are confident in anything. And some of you are in a similar place of life right now. You've been seeking answers from the Lord that have yet to come. You're facing things this morning that you would have never chosen yourself. You never willingly signed up for. And you feel like there's more things that you don't understand in your life than things that you actually do understand. And if you're in that, we're actually going to see a great example from none other than the disciples this morning. That when we find ourselves in those times of confusion, we find ourselves in those times of worry or doubt or frustration, and we feel lost, in those times what we actually need to pursue is obedience more than understanding. We need to simply obey what we know as we progress through those. And so to, to set this up, I'm going to invite Ruth Peelman up to read today's passage. She's going to be reading for us in Mark 9, verses 9 through 13. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with her to honor the reading of the Word of God this morning? Morning. Good morning. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does not come first to restore all things. And now, and how. It is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Thank you, Ruth. You guys have a seat. Now, to understand everything that went into this conversation, we need to recap how we got to this point. And so at the end of Mark 8, Jesus has the biggest, I don't like this word, but the biggest fight he's ever had with his disciples to this point, right? Where they, he asks them, who do you say that I am? And they rightly identify him as the Messiah, that Jesus is the promised, sent son of God. And so he begins to teach them what that means. 
He's like, guys, yes, I'm the Messiah, but I don't, my role and my duty and my purpose in coming is not exactly what you thought, right? Instead, I'm going to be rejected by our people. I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests and the elders. I'm going to be, I'm going to suffer many things. I'm actually going to be killed. And disciples hate this because their understanding of the Messiah was that he would be an earthly king and set up Israel as a dominant nation. He's the one-way ticket to the good life. And so they actually pull Jesus aside and rebuke him for this. The language we get from Matthew and Luke is that Peter actually says, this will never happen to you, Lord, as if he's somehow in charge now. And that leads to Jesus then rebuking the disciples, and then he calls a crowd over to hear the next part. He says, I know everybody thinks these 12 are my disciples, but here's the challenge. If anybody wants to be my disciple, then here's how it goes. Number one, you must deny yourself. Number two, you take up your cross, your instrument of death. And number three, you follow me wherever I lead you. And in the very start of this chapter, chapter 9, he says, there are some standing here right now who won't die before they see my kingdom come in power. And then he lets all this sit for a week. And then that brings us to this incredibly crucial event that we looked at last week, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and leads them up a mountain to where they can be alone for a little bit. And while he's there, Jesus is transfigured which means he, he literally changes into another more glorified form. And what we know physically is that he was at least shining brightly and his clothes were dazzling white, but I'm sure there was more going on than that. And then after he's transfigured, Moses and Elijah show up and they are standing there talking with Jesus about his upcoming death. And then God the Father shows up. He comes in a cloud that envelops the entire mountain and he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And the cloud and Moses and Elijah all disappear, and it's only Jesus is left standing there with the disciples. And we spent a lot of time last week unpacking that event, talking about everything it looked back at, everything it looked forward to. And, and I, I would encourage you, if you weren't here for that message, to go back and listen to it, um, because it is, it is one of the most crucial events that occurs in the Gospel of Mark. But the main point of all of it was this, was the exclusivity of Jesus, that there's no one equal to him. There's no one as worthy as him. There's no one else in which we can find life and grace and salvation in other than him. And he is the sovereign king of the universe forever. He is the son of God. And so what we read this morning, what, what Ruth just read for us, is Peter, James, and John coming off the mountain from that experience. They've just had that experience. And to help those of you taking notes, I, I like to, to frame uh, my sermons. I like to come up with like three to four teaching points from the passage. But there's so many little details here. And Jesus takes this answer so many different directions that I wasn't clever enough to come up with any catchy points. All right. And so what I'm going to do instead is kind of just walk you through the passage first by verse, point out the major details as we, before we seek to apply it. And the first thing that happens in verse 9 is that Jesus tells these three men to be silent, but for a season. All right, so look at verse 9 again. It says, As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, some of you out there are really good at keeping secrets. Maybe too good, right? And some of you might be more like me, that if you have good news, you want to sing like a canary. Now, I'm able to keep good news. I'm able to keep a secret if someone asks me to. I just don't enjoy that process. I'd much rather share it. And these three, Peter, James, and John, have seen some crazy things in their time with Jesus. But I have to think that what they saw on that mountain was the craziest. Jesus is transfigured. He changes form right in front of their very eyes. And then Moses and Elijah show up, who haven't been on the earth for hundreds of years. And then God the Father himself shows up and then speaks an audible voice. I've never heard God speak in an audible voice. 
Right? This, this, would, this would be the wildest thing they've ever seen to this point. And the first thing Jesus tells them to do after is just keep that quiet. Don't tell anybody about this, even the other nine disciples. Don't even say a word to them. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has told someone to be quiet in Mark about who he is or what he's done, is it? All the previous times were about keeping kind of the fervor and the excitement about Jesus under control because there, Jesus knew there was a specific time set for him to die. And if people tried to make him king, that could escalate the timeline a little bit because Rome had this really nasty habit of killing anyone who people wanted to make king. And so this is not the first time that we've seen this from Jesus and Mark, but I want you to note this is the very last. He won't again in this book ever tell someone to keep quiet about something he's done. And this time, unlike the others, he puts a time limit on it. He doesn't say, don't tell anyone and leave it there. He says, don't tell anyone until I've risen from the dead. Which means, we can deduce, right, that his earthly ministry is coming to a close. It's almost done. He's about to die, and then he will rise again. And after that, there's going to be a season, a time of proclamation, in which they are to shout from the rooftops everything that Jesus is and all that he's done. And we, as the church of Jesus Christ, are still in that time, by the way. Right? Our mandate, the mandate of the church, is to be Jesus' witnesses to the end of the earth, telling all of who he is, telling all what he's done, and how he can bring salvation to their souls. So we are in that season of proclamation. But in Mark 9, they're not. Peter, James, and John are told to tell no one about this for a season. And then they're shared openly. And so the question is this, what's the deal with the delay? Like, why can't they tell anybody? Well, a couple of reasons, right? Jesus is still working on his timeline. There's a plan that God the Father has laid out for him, and he intends to follow it. But secondly, we can see immediately in this passage that they still don't grasp what they just saw. Look at verse 10. It says, they kept this word to themselves. They did that. Good job. But they were questioning what rising from the dead meant. So there, there, Jesus keeps trying, if you, you'll start tracking this in the end of Mark 8, it's going to go through Mark 9, it's going to go through 10, it's going to go through 11, where Jesus keeps trying to get them to see that suffering is coming. It's a repeated theme he's going to hit over and over and over again, and each time they're going to struggle to grasp it, because they just don't have a concept for it. Last chapter, he told them this, look at, look at chapter 8, verse 31. This is when he introduced this theme. It says, he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. That teaching is what led to the big confrontation. The first time they heard it, they just rejected it outright. This time, they're improving a bit, okay? They're trending in the right direction. Let's give them credit. They don't correct or rebuke Jesus here, but they still don't get it. Right? And after his death on the cross, after they're witnesses to his resurrection, they're going to be able to go back and piece all this together and it's all going to make sense. But for now, they still don't understand what they just saw on the mountain. They definitely aren't grasping or recognizing the necessity of Jesus suffering and dying. And so it's best, if you just don't get it, it's best just to stay quiet for a bit and keep learning. Second thing that we see here is Jesus begins to clear up confusion about Elijah. Now look at, look at verse 11. They asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, this might be a question that you and I have not wondered at any point in our life, right? But I guarantee you this was something the disciples had wondered about for a while, and, and they just saw Elijah on the mountain, and so it brought it to the forefront of their minds again. And here's why. 
There's a popular teaching in their day that before the Messiah would come, Elijah would reappear and make way for the Messiah. And to understand this, we're going to have to do a little bit of Old Testament Bible study this morning. In Malachi chapter 3, we have this prophecy. It says, see, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. And so this one and a couple more in Isaiah talks about that before the arrival of the Messiah, there's going to be a prophet come before him and prepare the way for him. Now you add to that Malachi chapter 4, which we're told this. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And so it seems like it's pretty easy to add up, right? From these prophecies and some more in the book of Isaiah, plus the added detail that Elijah was taken to heaven before he died, and so he hasn't actually died yet. He's, they probably thought he was some kind of weird holding chamber. Right? The scribes and the teachers of the law taught everyone that Elijah would come first, and then the Messiah would come. The disciples have heard this from the time they've been in synagogue at a young age, and they've had no reason to believe that it wasn't true. But now, think about where they are now. Now they're convinced that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They just heard God himself say on the mountain, this is my son, listen to him. And they see Elijah there and they think to themselves, wait, wait a minute, I thought he was supposed to come first. And so they ask Jesus about this and, and listen to how Jesus answers this question. Verse 12, he says, Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. Sometimes I think Jesus was being confusing on purpose. Right? This is an interesting answer by Jesus. And he brings up in succession, quick rapid succession, three different things. And none of them kind of relate as much to each other. And so let's, let's take them one by one. And the first is he's pointing out here with that first hit, Elijah does come first and restores all things. He's operating from a level of knowledge that no one else has. And what he knows that no one else knows is this, is that he's actually going to come twice. Right? This, this first coming, the, the one that's happened, the one that they're witness to right now, the one that we're studying in the book of Mark, but there's a second coming that he promises. He promises return. He is taught about it. And when we read about it in Revelation, and we're in the period of waiting for it. And the majority of conservative Bible-believing scholars believe that Elijah will actually appear before his second coming. The, the, the most popular guess is that he's one of the witnesses we're told about in Revelation 11. And so the point of it is this, whether that's right or not, right? The point is this, that all interpretation of prophecy in Jesus' day was limited because they didn't have the full divine knowledge, right? They're, they're working with not a full chamber, and so they're going to be wrong in some ways. That's something we should remember today, right? As we think about end times and we look at Revelation, all our interpretations of prophecy today doesn't have the full level of divine knowledge that God has, and so we're going to be wrong in some way. Secondly, what Jesus does next is he confirms one Old Testament interpretation, but then points out another that everyone is ignoring. And he's, he's confirmed, yes, there is an Elijah who will come first, right? But then he says, why then is it talk about the Son of Man must suffer many things? And this goes back to the disciples' complete misunderstanding of his mission. Because if Elijah came first and restored all things, think of what that language means. If he restored all things, then Jesus could step right into his glory with no need for the cross at all. 
And so this is another instance of Jesus telling his disciples, guys, there is no way forward where I get to skip the suffering and get to skip the death. And so he points out to them, why then? Why has it been prophesied that the Son of Man must suffer? Prophecies like this in Isaiah 53. That he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. A prophecy is 700 years before Christ came. Psalm 22 is written even before that and it talks in details about his crucifixion. And what he's saying is this, you can't skip this part of the plan, fellas. Right? Just as it was prophesied, all these things that you're asking about was prophesied about, my suffering and death was planned out as well. And then the third point he makes is this, that Elijah actually has come. That, that from, for this first arrival, it was actually John the Baptist who fulfilled that role of Elijah. And it's not the only time he taught this. Matthew chapter 11, this is what Jesus says. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, what does he say? He is the Elijah who is to come. And so what Jesus said in Matthew 11, he's repeating here in Mark 9, and both times he makes the same correlation. That not only did John the Baptist fulfill the role of Elijah, he is also, in addition, another in a long line of God's servants who faced violence and persecution and were killed. Because God's servants have always been persecuted. They've always faced violence. They've always been resisted. They've always been rejected. And so the question before these two disciples is this, why would it be any different for the Messiah? If it's happened every time before him, why would it be any different for his son? Now, we could go deep in the weeds on some of this uh, this morning in prophecies and all first coming, second coming, all that stuff. And maybe in your groups, go for it, right? You have my permission. But this morning, right, what I want to do is I want to bring this passage home and allow God's word to go to work to us and speak to us and see what truths that we can mine from it that we can apply to our lives. And there's a few I do see here. And the first is this, is that God's ways are not our ways. There's a pretty famous passage in the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah 55, and the Lord declares this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than the earth. Think about that gap. For as heaven is that much higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, this is one of the most obvious and plain truths in all the scriptures. And yet we need reminded of it again and again and again, don't we? And we see it on display here in Mark 9. I want you to contrast what you see from Jesus and what you see from these two disciples. There's nothing that happened on the Mount of Transfiguration that confused Jesus. He knows what lies ahead of him. He has a full grasp on every prophecy that was, that was declared about him and about anyone else. He knows what he's doing, and he knows what must be done. He has a full, secure grasp on all of it. The disciples are in an absolute whirlwind. They're not getting any of it, right? They're, much of what they thought to be true has been completely wrong, right? They're, they're way behind. They aren't grasping the things that they are seeing. They're confused. They're lost. They're bewildered. They're not on the same page. They're not on the same level of Jesus at all. And it's precisely because he knows way more than they do. He knows the future. He knows what he's doing. He knows what is best. And he's way out in front of them. And this is a truth that we need to remember. As 
especially, and I mean especially in those times of life when we are confused or lost or bewildered or hurt. We need to tell ourselves, God knows more than I do. He knows the future, right? He knows what he's doing. He knows what is best. He's, he's actually out in front of me, and there is tremendous peace in that. And here's the best part of all. Jesus didn't need these guys to understand what he was doing. He didn't need them to get it. He didn't need them to support what he was doing in order to complete his mission. He didn't need them to grasp at all in order to defeat sin and death and offer eternal life to all who believe in him. His success did not ride on them getting it right, and thank God it didn't. And the same is true today. God does not need me to understand everything he's doing. He doesn't need me to get it. He doesn't need me to make sense of what he's doing in my life. Thank God he doesn't. Because with or without me, and it's most often without me, he's going to work it out for my good without my understanding. And so it will take a lot of unnecessary pain and angst out of my life when I let go of the expectation that I need to understand it all. And instead, just accept the fact that he's God and I am not. And by the way, it's not just in my confusion or pain that I need to recognize that he's on a different level than I am. I also need to understand that he sees things differently than I see them. There are things that I might call bad that he decides are good. There are paths that I would never choose, and he's like, no, that's the best one. It's on display here for the disciples in these, in these passages, right? They keep, note, take note of what's happened since the end of Mark 8. They keep looking for ways for Jesus to avoid the suffering, right? First they rebuke him. This will never happen to you. That doesn't go well, right? Then they're like, let's stay on the mountain. Let's build your shelter. Let's just stay here. Stay in your glory. And he's like, no, we got to go back down the mountain. And now they're looking for the Elijah loopholes. He's going to come and restore everything. You just skip that part. Because what they see is they see suffering as nothing but bad, And it goes back to how we as human beings view everything, but especially how we view sin and suffering. And our our basic mode of operation is this. We always downplay our sins. We try to treat them as if they're no big deal. After all, nobody's perfect, right? Everybody's a sinner, so my sin can't be that big of a deal. And then we actually, in that, we start building on that, and we think that all of my bad moments can somehow be outweighed by the good things that I do. And so in this thinking, overall, the vast, vast, vast majority of human beings consider themselves to be good people, despite quite a bit of evidence to the contrary. Then you add to that building block, since we're good people, we can ask questions like this. Well, why do bad things happen to good people? Because suffering, in our minds, is only a form of punishment. That's all it could be. And so it should be reserved for those bad people, like the worst among us, not me, because what I, a good person, deserve is a long and comfortable and easy life. Well, the Bible tells us how God views all these things, and it's nothing like the way we see things. What it tells us is that human sin, all sin, is an act of outright rebellion against our Creator. Colossians 1 says that we are hostile in our minds and our actions towards God in our sins. That we constantly want the glory that he deserves and we want it for ourselves. Romans 1 says that we take the good things that he gives us and we replace him with them. Right? We make them the object of our worship. We make them the object of our devotion, bypassing the giver completely. We reject his design. We mock his wisdom. We deny his authority and we profane everything that is holy. And the consequences of this are massive. 
that all of creation, every aspect of creation is under a curse due to sin, including us. Which means this, that suffering is not a punishment. Suffering is guaranteed. Because all of creation is crying out and groaning and under the curse. And so natural disasters and tragedies and illness and cancer and divorce and separation and abuse and prejudice and racism, all kinds of evil, death itself, these are the end results of creation being under a curse. And there is no way out of that curse without suffering. There is no atonement for sins without the shedding of blood. And so to defeat sin itself, to break the curse, to offer us life forever where all things are made new and there is no curse, God could not avoid suffering. He had to walk face first into it. Enter Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, being rejected by mere men, being beaten and punched and spit upon and whipped and having the flesh torn off his back and nails driven into his wrists and his feet and hoisted up on a cross to suffer excruciatingly. The giver of life himself had to face death, all to erase our debt, all to offer us forgiveness and defeat the curse. You still think your sin's not a big deal? Look at, the, look at the steps God had to take in order to eradicate it. He unleashed a torrent of his divine anger and righteous wrath for sin all over his son. So that through his suffering, our suffering can be redeemed. That through his suffering, our sins can be forgiven. Through his cost, we could experience great reward. If we believe in Jesus and in Jesus alone. We'll find eternal life in him, and he's the only way. And by the way, if you've done that, then he promises that if we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, then our sufferings can be transformed into glory as well. Which is why the last thing that I see from this passage, and the most obvious is this, is that we should obey even in the midst of confusion. To this point in the story, there's a lot that Peter, James, and John don't understand. There's a lot they've gotten wrong. There's a lot going forward they're still going to get wrong. They are not on the same page as Jesus at all. This is precisely why he told them, you can't tell anybody about this. But let's give credit where credit's due. They got one thing right. They didn't say a word. They didn't tell anyone about this until after the resurrection. They stayed silent. They obeyed even though they didn't understand why they should. And sometimes... Our divine CEO will tell us to make hundreds of phone calls and we don't know why. And we're not going to get everything right. In fact, in a life of following God and letting him have control, you're going to be confused a lot. I can tell you in the last two to three years, I've spent way more days confused than than not in trying to figure out what God's doing in my life. It's been a prolonged season of confusion. You add to that, then in our early days of following Jesus, we, won't, we wouldn't pass every theology quiz. You can't read every book of the Bible the first time you open it. But whether you follow Jesus for one minute or 80 years, there's something that all of us can always do. We can obey what we know. We can obey what we know. And at the end of the next service, we get to witness the baptism. That's one of my favorite things about baptisms. The vast majority of people who get baptized are incredibly infants in their faith. They haven't had time to read this book all the way through. They couldn't pass the Bible quiz you put it before them, but they know two things, that Jesus saved them and he told them to be baptized. And that's enough for them to act out that obedience. It's a beautiful picture for how we should live our lives. 
I'm not telling you this morning to stop asking God for wisdom. Don't stop asking him for clarity or understanding. There's nothing wrong in seeking those things. But in the meantime, while you wait for them, pursue obedience more than you pursue understanding. If you don't know what God is asking you to do next, then do the last thing that he told you to the best of your ability. There are plenty of things, by the way, that are clear. Clear commands in his words, even when we don't understand what he's doing in our lives. We, we know that we're told to love others. We know that we're told to share the hope of Jesus. We know that we're commanded to think of ourselves less. We know that we're, we are to consider others more important than us. We know that he wants us to be a loving parent or loving spouse. We know he wants us to obey our parents. We know that he wants us to honor one another and that we should seek to please the Lord. And so if you're in a time of confusion right now, if you're in a time where clarity is hard to come by, return to what you know. Seek to obey what has been made clear. It's never a bad idea. Obey your king, and then clarity will come if he chooses for it to come. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for this picture of your son being so far ahead of these three disciples. He's so out in front. He knows so much more than them that, that his knowledge is secure, that he is fully at peace, that he's confident, he's comfortable, and they don't have a clue what's happening. Because God, it paints a beautiful picture for what a life of following you is often like. You are so far ahead. You're so far out in front of us. Your ways are so much higher than my ways. Your thoughts are so much higher than my thoughts that you are confident, you are secure, you know all things, you hold all things, and I'm in a whirlwind. And there are times that by your grace you bring clarity. There are times that by your grace you bring understanding, and we praise you for those times, but there are also times you don't. In the midst of the waiting, in the midst of withholding that, what you seek is obedience. What you seek is that we'll live out what you have told us to live out. What you seek is that we'll honor you the way you've told us to honor you. What you seek is hearts that look to please you in all things. And so I pray for anybody in this room who's, who's struggling with understanding, God, who's confused, who's hurt, who's seeking clarity. We do ask that if it fits your divine will for them, that you would provide them the clarity they seek. But in the meantime, Lord, would you find in us a church that doesn't need the answers before we obey, that doesn't need to understand everything before we seek to honor you, that we will seek to obey you at all times in every way. Do this for your sake. Do this for your kingdom's sake. Do this for the glory of your name. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, before we dismiss you, we just give you a couple moments to spend as time of response with the Lord. Maybe, maybe you just need to be blown away at, at his glory, at, at how much higher his ways is than our ways. Maybe you need to be blown away that despite that, he still forgives us in grace. Or maybe you need to seek him for the next step of obedience in your life. Whatever it is you want to do, uh, spend this time with him.